Chapter 12 of Napoleon, a short biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Napoleon, a short biography by R. M. Johnston. Chapter 12 Wagram. Austrian jealousy. French discontent. Napoleon leaves Spain, war with Austria, Aspern and Essling, dispossession of the Pope, Wagram, peace. There were two causes that brought Napoleon suddenly back from Spain to Paris, one general and widely known, the other of a more intimate and obscure character the first of these was connected with the relations of france with the great powers of northeastern europe to understand it we must go back a little and pick up the thread of policy spun by napoleon at tilsit in eighteen o seven with prussia reduced to impotence and largely occupied by french troops there were now as military factors but two powers in the northeast russia and austria the friendly advances of napoleon to the former indicated beyond question that his policy in that quarter would turn on the balancing of these two powers one against the other and further his friendship with russia was held at vienna to imply hostility to austria the inference was obvious and told more deeply owing to the repeated humiliations austria had met with though napoleon would doubtless have been pleased to remain at peace with her from the time when eylau opened anew the possibility of shaking off the napoleonic yoke the cabinet of vienna made great efforts to reorganize its army and resources but the emperor's relations with alexander though outwardly friendly had already developed slight points of friction and in the summer of eighteen o eight an interview between the two was arranged for the discussion of their interests it took place at erfurt here amid much pomp surrounded by the princes of germany and of the french empire they privately debated the questions of poland of prussia of great britain and in short the whole political field from st petersburg to cadiz and from norway to india the nature of these conferences was not generally known and it was only a few of the best-placed and most astute observers such as talleyrand who detected the fundamental incompatibility of views between napoleon and alexander that must sooner or later break down their alliance the general opinion was that france and russia were in perfect accord and that jointly they could control the whole of continental europe in reality the czar chafed at the pressure of the french empire eastwards in prussia in poland in the balkan peninsula the conference at erfurt alarmed austria her statesmen were not sure that napoleon had not given russia a free hand against sweden and turkey as a price for her abstention from interfering against his carrying out some design against austria was it his intention to reduce the emperor francis to the position of king frederick william or perhaps even to steal his throne as he had that of charles the fourth there was little present ground for fear yet 
Austria pressed her armaments forward. Napoleon declared to Count Metternich, Austrian ambassador at Paris, that if Austria armed, she could never afford to disarm without fighting, and that war must therefore follow, and he disclaimed, probably sincerely, all hostile intention. Yet the dangerous process continued during the autumn and winter months of 1808. By the beginning of 1809, Austria had gone so far that war was inevitable, and it became clear that, sooner or later, Napoleon must leave Spain and return to Germany. It does not appear probable, however, that he would have abandoned the pursuit of Sir John Moore quite so precipitately as he did, had there not been another matter of importance that required his presence in Paris without delay. In 1799, Bonaparte's advent to power had been eagerly supported by reasonable men of many shades of political opinion. His early steps as a ruler tended to confirm the hopes of those who looked to him to provide stability, and, even if he aimed openly at personal power, yet through him was introduced such sound administration, finance, and justice as France had never known. Many, therefore, viewed his personal rule so far as a blessing. But the development of Napoleon's policy after the proclamation of the empire, after Austerlitz, after Jena, and especially after Tilsit, frightened those who dared think for themselves, and whose insight was not obscured by apparent prosperity, large salaries, and unaccustomed titles. Talleyrand, after long directing the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, had held back strongly from the Tilsit policy, and had been transferred to the non-political functions of High Chamberlain. Fouché, the ex-terrorist and Jacobin, head of the secret police, thought that Napoleon was going too far, saw in the Spanish War the possibility of a personal or military disaster for the emperor, and, ever on the lookout for political evolutions, viewed with complacency an eventual vacancy of the throne and the possible promotion of his friend, the dashing, popular, liberal-minded, and liberal-handed Joaquin Murat, King of Naples. Nothing much was actually done, yet a political demonstration of the greatest significance occurred. For many years, Talleyrand and Fouché had been estranged and barely on speaking terms. One night, while Napoleon was toiling through the snow-clad passes of revolted Spain after Sir John Moore, these two important political personages made their entrance at a fashionable reception arm in arm and ostentatiously promenaded their alliance before the astonished guests it was a little thing and yet it was a great one for talleyrand and fouche were the two most delicate political weathercocks in france and if they both veered together it was safe to conclude there was something in the wind so Napoleon thought, as he spurred and galloped back to Paris. He publicly disgraced Talleyrand. He privately admonished Fouché, but continued to employ him. But though on the surface this was the close of the incident, there can be little doubt when the course of events is noted 
that napoleon now had brought into stronger prominence before him than ever the perplexing question of the imperial succession he was now the most powerful sovereign of europe he had already established his fame as the greatest legislator and conqueror of history yet two of his subjects could venture to suggest publicly that they and not he might eventually decide to whom his magnificent empire should revert josephine could not give him an heir he had no faith in the power of any of his brothers to retain his throne yet he could not live forever more especially if continually exposing his life to the dangers of the battlefield it was in no pleasant mood that napoleon now faced the fast approaching war with austria a war he did not seek from which he could gain little and that interfered with the completion of the conquest of spain it came at the last somewhat unexpectedly on the tenth of april eighteen o nine the archduke charles crossed the bavarian frontier announcing in his proclamations that austria was championing the cause of european liberty and calling on all germans to rise against their oppressors it was making the courageous stand of the people of spain a text for all the nations of europe for a few days the archduke held a great strategic advantage and had he pressed forward among the scattered french corps would probably have won considerable successes napoleon hurried on from paris and by a series of rapid maneuvers which he always considered the most brilliant he ever carried out concentrated his corps forced the passage of the isar and brought the archduke to a general engagement at ecmoule the interest of these operations depends on an examination too minute and lengthy to be followed out here all that it will be possible to say is that at ecmoule the archduke charles was severely defeated and napoleon found himself as after ulm on the high road to vienna on the tenth of may occurred a slight incident of which the interest is of a character rarely to be found in the life of napoleon the french had arrived in front of vienna and although the archduke charles with the great mass of the austrian army was on the further bank of the danube there was an attempt at resistance the invaders brought artillery into position and opened fire on the city napoleon was now informed that the young archduchess maria louisa had not been able to leave the palace owing to illness he immediately gave orders to have the guns trained in another direction he probably little guessed that the princess for whom he showed this consideration would in less than twelve months be empress of the french the resistance of vienna was not serious and the french army quickly occupied it while napoleon was maturing a plan for crossing to the north side of the danube whence the archduke charles was watching his movements with a large army he issued a decree annexing rome to the empire may seventeen the army was now moved a few miles east of vienna bridges were constructed and on the twenty first the leading brigades began to deploy on the further bank between the villages of aspern and essling at this point 
desperate fighting took place during the twenty first and twenty second the archduke charles attacked in force the french numbers on the northern bank gradually increased until on the second day a rise of the danube broke down the bridges then it became a question of whether the french could hold their ground while engineers worked desperately to re-establish communications lan and massena held the austrians at bay with dogged obstinacy fought on till night and thus enabled the troops to retreat in safety but napoleon had lost twenty-five thousand men including marshal lan who was mortally wounded at the close of the day and whatever excuses there might be to offer he had been defeated by the archduke charles the french army had now retreated from the northern bank into the large island of lobau and the marshals whom napoleon consulted were all of opinion that the retreat should be continued to vienna or at all events to the southern bank napoleon's decision admirably illustrates a cardinal principle of strategy it is nearly invariably the rule that of two armies one is attacking the other defending one has the offensive the other the defensive so long as that relation holds the army on the offensive has the move that is it may within certain limits choose a line of operations which its opponent is compelled to devise methods to defend the offensive in the hands of a competent general is an immense military advantage to be retained at any cost and for this reason napoleon decided to keep his army in the island of lobau rather than seek safety on the southern bank of the danube for in that position he still threatened aspern and essling which the archduke could not abandon but had he fallen back then the offensive would have passed to the enemy and he would have been obliged to reply to whatever move the archduke chose to make napoleon therefore remained cooped up with his army in the island of lobau while the austrians daily entrenched themselves along his front the check was not unlike that at eylau and all europe was eagerly on the watch for several weeks to see what the next move would be the opponents of napoleon plucked up courage the more so as sir arthur wellesley was once more operating in portugal and had defeated soule at oporto germany appeared on the point of rising the dispossessed pope fulminated a degree of excommunication against his spoilers and had to be removed from rome as a prisoner a british fleet and army occupied the island of ischia in the bay of naples and threatened joaquim murat in his capital once more as at austerlitz as at friedland napoleon cleared a threatening situation by a great military stroke at the northwest corner of the island of lobau where his bridges had been established opposite the heavily fortified austrian lines at aspern and essling he placed his largest guns and opened a fierce bombardment he wanted the austrians to believe that he intended forcing their position by a frontal attack in the meanwhile secret preparations were made for another move on the night of the fourth of july bridges were rapidly thrown over the danube from the lower or southeastern end of the island 
and in the early hours of the fifth the army had got a footing on the northern bank in the marchfeld thus turning the archduke's position at essling the austrians changed front and during that day there was considerable fighting between the two armies on the sixth was fought the memorable battle of wagram in which about two hundred and fifty thousand men were engaged the austrians having abandoned their essling aspern position had now fallen back a few miles to the west napoleon faced them and made dispositions not dissimilar to those that had given him such a complete victory at austerlitz the archduke's right was extended towards the danube nearly opposite vienna and it was clearly to his interest not to be driven back at this point there was a further incitement to strengthen this wing because if the opposite wing of the french could be made to give away napoleon's line of retreat through the island of lobau would be compromised the emperor divining his opponent's thoughts and relying on his own numerical superiority decided to encourage the archduke to attack this part of his line but placed massena the most resolute and resourceful of all the marshals in command in the meantime the french right under davoust strongly attacked the austrian left the archduke charles met with some measure of success at first though pressed by davoust on his left his centre held its ground and his right was slowly driving back massena as success began to appear possible on this part of the field the austrian supports were gradually pushed out from the centre towards the right until at last napoleon judged the moment had come for the decisive movement a battery of one hundred and twenty guns was suddenly massed within short range of the austrian centre bernadotte and macdonald were pushed forward and the archduke found his line too weak to resist his right wing was in the greatest danger of being cut off and separated and there was no alternative but to order a retreat along the whole line he drew off his army defeated but far from routed some fifty thousand men were killed and wounded the losses being fairly equally divided but though beaten the austrians left behind them practically no prisoners shortly afterwards an armistice was concluded and for the fourth time austria accepted defeat at the hands of napoleon this was recorded in the treaty of schonbrunn whereby she lost with other territory trieste and illyria thus becoming an inland power but however humbled and weakened for the moment an unexpected event a few months later gave the house of hapsburg renewed importance in the politics of europe that event must be discussed in the next chapter end of chapter twelve recording by linda johnson